Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome to the Explores, the Halloween edition. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. You're sitting at a big, round table in someone's dining room. It's dark outside the windows. The only light comes from the many candles, glinting off jewelry and casting shadows over people's eyes. Everyone joins hands. Someone starts singing a hymn, and you join in. The sound of it slides across the floor, up the walls, vibrating through you. The young woman across from you lays her hands upon the table, fingers spread wide. Are there any spirits here? She asks. You wait and wait, and then you hear... A rapping. The spirits are amongst us. Is that you, Aunt Ida? You don't understand what they're saying, but the woman across from you does. She is the medium. The conduit through which the dead are to speak. New, controversial, and powerful, spiritualism swept like wildfire through America. Whether you were a believer or a skeptic, you couldn't ignore it. It was everywhere. The notion that the spirits of the dead weren't gone, but all around us. And they could be reached through a medium, who was almost always a woman. Mediums offered people solace, entertainment, and proof of an immortal soul. But spiritualism also offered women a way to escape the strict societal ropes that bound them. It literally offered them a seat at the table, giving them a voice and the power to use it. And many did, on stages and in parlors across the country. Even the White House saw its fair share of late-night seances. Ghosts were alive and well in the 19th century. But what made the Victorian era so haunted? And what gave ladies ownership over the business of talking to the dead? Grab your black veil, a planchette, and some smelling salts. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some patrons. My pirate queens, Jessica, Emily, Edie, Diana, and Michelle. And my lady presidents, Amy, Brendan, Avery, Caroline, Elizabeth, Eve, Jackie, Caitlin, Karen, Kat, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Nancy, and Paul. <laughs> Let's start in Hydesville, New York on March 31st, 1848. This is when spiritualism really takes off. We're in the house of two teenage sisters, Kate and Maggie Fox. Their mother, Margaret, is getting very freaked out by the ghost the girls claim is trying to communicate with them. It keeps rapping loudly on the walls and floor, and I can't imagine anyone sleeping well. When the girls tell a neighbor they've made contact with a spirit, a devil whom they call Mr. Splitfoot, the neighbor doesn't believe them. Come on over, they say. See for yourself. 
And so the neighbor does. The sisters climb into bed, their mother hovering close. Now count five, one says. And what do they hear? Count fifteen, the other says. And the spirit obliges. It even wraps out the neighbor's age, thirty-three. The Fox family leaves their haunted house and sends Maggie and Kate to Rochester, New York, to stay with their married sister, Leah. Rochester is a place where reform and radical religious communities abound, which make it the perfect place for the lit match that is the Fox sisters to turn into a spiritual bonfire. They're invited over by some excited neighbors and religious leaders, Isaac and Amy Post. Isaac is skeptical at first, but impressed by what he called very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers. And luckily, it turns out that Leia Fox can commune with spirits too. She manages to commune with the post-dead daughter. At first, the raps are a binary system, just yes and no. But Isaac works out a handy alphabet so the dead can spell out whole words and sentences. It takes a while, but it seems the dead have plenty to say. The posts have a lot of friends in high places, who they invite over to partake of this amazing phenomenon. Soon the girls are setting up shop at New York City's Barnum's Hotel, where they begin offering three seances a day at one dollar a pop. They are an immediate sensation. Spiritualism the religious movement that posits we can reach the dead and talk to them, has arrived, and in a big way. But why is 19th century America so obsessed with being haunted? Spiritualism's first stirrings developed in Austria with an 18th century healer named Franz Anton Mesmer, who concluded that all living things had magnetic fluid inside of them. Naturally. The planet sent out invisible rays, he reasoned, that affected the flow of that fluid, in a phenomena he called animal magnetism. Next time I exhibit road rage, I'm definitely blaming that. If you harness that magnetism with metals like iron and minerals, applied while a patient is in a mesmerized hypnotic state, you can actually control the body. You can even use that magnetism to heal it. Mesmer became quite the big deal with this theory, treating guys like Wolfgang Mozart. Given the fact that Mozart died at 35, I'm not sure how well that turned out for him. When some people awaken from a mesmeric trance, they claim to have experienced visions of spirits in some other dimension. Not ours, but something close to it. Meanwhile, Swedish mystic Emanuel Swedenborg seemed to know an awful lot about the afterlife. He said there were three heavens, three hells, and a middle plane, the spirit plane, which is very much like the world on earth. Man after death is as much man as he was before, so much so as to be unaware that he is not still in the former world. Death is only a crossing. But the movement doesn't really take off in America until Andrew Jackson Davis starts hearing spirits from a very early age. In 1844, after putting himself into a mesmeric trance, he wanders into the mountains, where our friend Swedenborg's spirit speaks directly to him. How convenient! He writes his messages down verbatim, revealing that the spirit world isn't a static place, but one that moves, one that can be reached into and wandered out of. There isn't just one heaven, one hell. There are spheres, and spirits can move up and down them which means that death isn't an ending, but an evolution, a whole new state of being. All righty. But how did this idea work its way into a very Christian public's consciousness? Remember that we're living in a world of defined spheres, the public one where men vote and work and make decisions, and the private sphere, where women raise children and clean and have hysteric breakdowns now and then. Remember that we're living in a very Christian society, too, and we women are considered moral pillars, guiding lights to keep us all on the pure and narrow path. And so women are an important part of the family and community's spiritual life, including in the church. It's one of the only public places they exercise any real power. But as a rule, women aren't allowed to be clergy, and they're not allowed to serve in high church positions. No, no, ladies. It's not for you to stand up and talk in church. The Bible says so. 
Just sit quietly and listen to this old, wrinkly man tell you all about your soul. Right. A lot of people, men and women alike, are losing faith in the rigid, fire and brimstone, you were born already sinning and separated from grace model. Many of these are liberal-leaning reformers who feel the Protestant church aren't holding up their end of the spiritual bargain. They aren't helping restructure constricting roles for men and women, aren't helping women get the vote. They certainly aren't emancipating slaves. They're just helping to hold up the status quo. But spiritualism takes a different approach. Instead of saying that souls are naturally sinful, it says that souls are naturally divine. That all of us have an inner light and connection to the spiritual. The soul can be a bridge between this life and the hereafter. Still monstrous evils afflict the dwellers of the earth, wrote Cora Wilburn, a well-known spiritualist of the day. And as the Bible fails to apply the remedy, must there not be a higher and a safe guide? There is in the human soul. And if you're an opinionated lady squashed into that pew at the back of the church wearing a very uncomfortable bonnet, that probably sounds pretty nice. Remember, too, that things are changing quickly in America. This is the era of Charles Darwin and his evolutionary theory, of the beginnings of electricity and the fast-moving train. America is moving swiftly toward industrialization. It's on the cusp of flushing toilets, bicycles, typewriters, lights that turn on and off without the use of a match. Oh my. You'd think technology would blow the lid right off this talking to spirits business, but to most people, all this science stuff feels an awful lot like magic. Take the Telegraph. In 1842, a guy named Sam F.B. Morse put a petition for $30,000 before Congress. Years earlier, while away on business, Morse found out that his wife Lucretia had fallen ill. But by the time he got home, she'd already been buried. Apparently, his heartbreak over getting the news too late was part of what inspired him to look into long-distance communication. It may even have pushed him to invent the electric telegraph and develop the Morse code that bears his name. In 1842, he wants to build an experimental telegraph line between Baltimore and Washington. And it's actually laughed at on the Senate floor. A guy fabulously named Cave Johnson gets up and essentially says that, What the hell? If we're going to throw money at that, why don't we just chuck some at the mesmerists? And how about some for those Millerites who are predicting that Christ will rise again in 1844? Oh, how everyone laughed. Electricity won't really become a big thing until 1882. And even then, most people use oil lanterns well into the 1920s. The idea of messages shooting through the air, invisible, seems like some kind of dark voodoo. And I mean, that makes sense if you don't know anything about electricity. It's invisible, unfathomable just like talking to spirits. In fact, spiritualists use the telegraph to help explain how they work their magic. One medium said that spirit communications flowed from mind to mind as electric fluid on the telegraphic wire. That's how spiritualists explain why spirit circles should be formed of equal parts men and women. It's all about creating a harmonious sort of charge between women, the negative charge, and men, the positive one. Really? And there are plenty of new sciences that rely on the invisible and interpretive. Sociology for one, anthropology for another. And of course you have phrenology, the art of fondling headlumps, which can tell you what kind of person you are. Phrenology actually helps prove that men and women are equals. Lydia Fowler, one of the first women to get a medical degree in America, goes around giving enthusiastic lectures on it to audiences made up almost entirely of women. The idea that we can talk to spirits isn't some weird offshoot of science. Leading minds of the day take it seriously. Alfred Russell Wallace, co-founder of evolutionary theory, is a fan. Later in this century, he'll be ridiculed by some for being so enamored with spiritualism. But like many, he sees it as worthy of scientific study. The whole history of science shows us that whenever the educated and scientific men of any age have denied the facts of other investigators on prior grounds of absurdity or impossibility, the deniers have always been wrong. 
And so instead of damning spiritualism, in some ways, the rising tide of science helps make room for it. Science is illuminating things, but it's also confusing things in a fast-changing time. Technology is speeding up the pace at which we live, and that has people reaching for answers, wanting something to hold on to amid the mad rush. The church isn't offering satisfactory answers, but we're not quite ready to embrace science as religion either. Neither of them can altogether cure what Abby Sewell calls the disease of a starved heart. But perhaps the spirits of those on an elevated plane might help us. Plus, spiritualism provides scientific proof of something a lot of people yearn for. That the soul actually exists, and that it continues on, even after our bodies fail us. Plenty of men are involved in the spiritualist movement, but it's really women like the foxes who bring it exploding into the mainstream, and women who drive the demand for it. Why? Because it turns out that Victorian ladies have plenty of reasons to want to be haunted. In Victorian America, death is never far from our hearthstones. Most people will only live into their 40s, and that's only if malaria, cholera, childbed fever, or 19th century medicine don't take us first. In this century, we have a much more intimate relationship with death. So it's no wonder that taphophobia is a common affliction, the fear of being buried alive. With illnesses that put people in a coma-like state, and doctors unable and unwilling to do more than poke you a few times, and maybe shout your name loudly, it's hard to know for sure if someone's dead. There are ways to test besides the obvious. For instance, your doctor can give you a compressed smoke enema. You didn't think we'd make it through this without at least one enema, did you? Victorians are so worried about being buried alive that it actually has a name, vivisepulture. Southern gent Edgar Allan Poe writes a terrifying short story about it. In The Premature Burial, a guy becomes obsessed with worry over the possibility. To be buried while alive is, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? Sometimes the dead are put in waiting houses, which are kind of like hospitals, where attendants watch and care for the deceased. You know, just in case they get up. For people who want to take no chances, there are safety coffins. They're rigged with air tubes and a handy bell and pulley system. So if you wake up sweating in a tiny box, don't claw the woodwork. Just ring the bell and wait. Someone will find you before you run out of air. Probably. We also have to worry about so-called resurrection men, or grave robbers, who are apparently quite keen to dig up bodies and sell them to eager medical students. Sometimes they even ask women to act as bereaved family members, claiming bodies from poor houses and crashing funerals to try and ascertain the state of a grave. Not cute, ladies. Budding doctors of the age are eager to study human cadavers, and apparently donating your body to science isn't yet a thing. Grave robbing becomes such a serious issue that states pass anatomy acts to keep students' scrubby hands out of grave sites. In a very Christian society, where mourning is an ornate and intimate ritual, and in which we believe that if dirt is touching the body, your soul can't rise to heaven, this is unseemly, to say the very least. And then there's this. Some 40% of children are dying by the age of five. That's almost half of America's children. Sadly, that number grows amongst the poor and the enslaved. The women we've traveled with this season are all so different, but they have this one horrifying thing in common. Virtually all of them, from secret lady soldier Emma Edmonds to Confederate spy Rose O'Neill Greenhow, loses at least one child to illness. The church will have you believe that death is a final ending. Next stop, either heaven or hell, the end. But spiritualism proposes an alternative line of thinking, that our children are hovering just beyond us, watching us, that the afterlife is something beautiful, and that souls continue to evolve and grow. In a sense, they continue to live on all around us. What grieving parent wouldn't want to believe in that? 
Take Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune and big fan of the Fox sisters. He and his wife lose seven children. It's under that black cloud that in 1850, his wife persuades him to go and see phrenologist Charlotte Fowler-Wells, sister-in-law to our doctor friend Lydia. At her weekly seances, her brother performs a feat called automatic writing, where he goes into a trance and writes down messages from the beyond. Imagine how desperately he'd want to speak to his children, how much we'd want to know that they're at peace. The Victorian era is a sentimental age, a romantic age. It's also the age of American Gothic fiction. It was in the 1840s that Edgar Allan Poe wrote his story, The Telltale Heart, about the heart of someone the narrator had murdered beating under his floorboards. Mmm... But before that, back in the 1820s, an 18-year-old Poe joined the Army and spent some time outside of Charleston, South Carolina. It's there that, legend has it, he fell in love with 14-year-old Anna Ravenel. But it was a forbidden love from the start. They had clandestine meetings in a local graveyard, until her father found out and locked her up in the house. But it was hot in Charleston that summer. Anna contracted some kind of illness and died. The heartbroken Poe wasn't allowed to attend her funeral. Anna's father must really have hated him, because he wouldn't even tell Poe where her body was buried. But Edgar never forgot his young lover. His last published poem, Annabelle Lee, is said to be based on her. I once went on a Charleston ghost tour to the Unitarian Church graveyard, which is where she supposedly does her haunting. I looked for her keenly. Disappointingly, she did not appear to tell me whether Edgar was an excellent kisser or not. We do well to remember the Victorian Americans are Gothic Americans. They turn mourning into an art form, and that art form is, primarily, a woman's realm. It's women who sit by sick children's bedsides to nurse them. They don't go to hospitals. Before the Civil War, less than 15% of people die outside the home. They die in their beds, surrounded by loved ones who can hear their final confessions. It's women who wash their bodies and arrange their funerals, also held at home. Clocks are stopped at the time of someone's death, silenced so as not to encourage their loved ones to stick around and haunt them. Anything reflective or shiny is covered, including all mirrors and glass. With the advent of photography, many families start taking pictures of their dead, called post-mortem photography. Children are often dressed and posed like they're still living, propped up with books and toys in their hands. Sometimes the family even poses with the body, which is... Yes, it's a little much for me, too. But photography is quite a new invention, remember. For many, this is the only likeness of their loved one that they're ever going to have the chance to take. All of these rituals are part of the notion of the good death a way of dying and of mourning that is central to the world we're currently traveling through. There are even instructional booklets on the art of death and mourning, and many of them are aimed at women. Death and mourning fall very firmly into the domestic sphere, the woman's sphere. And we take our duties seriously. There are strict codes for mourning, particularly in the realm of dress. You'll start in deep mourning, wearing all black. Then move on to full mourning, where you'll add in a white collar and maybe some white lace cuffs. Then it's half mourning, where you'll throw some lavender and some gray into the rotation, but certainly nothing bright and flashy. Men, with their need to go out and run things, I guess, tend not to wear mourning clothes for long. They grieve a spouse for three months, and often just by wearing a black armband. But women stay in mourning for much longer. They wear mourning clothes over a sister for six months, a child for a year. And as a widow, they can wear mourning for up to two and a half years. This is a time when spouses and children are dying with some regularity. So ladies, I sure hope you like wearing black. Nanny Haskins apparently looked great in it. After her brother dies in the Civil War, she wrote with indignation about being complimented on how fetching she looked in her morning clothes. Becomes me fiddlestick. What do I care whether it becomes me or not? I don't wear black because it becomes me. I wear mourning because it corresponds with my feelings. 
There's something to appreciate about this ritual. Morning clothes are grief made visible. All people have to do, familiars and strangers alike, is look at you to know that you're going through a process of grief. Over in England, Queen Victoria really set the trend by grieving more aggressively than anyone. After her husband Albert dies in 1861, she wears all black for the rest of her life. But we Victorian ladies take death wear even further. We are quite wild about making jewelry out of a dead loved one's hair, called hair work. Earrings, brooches, hair clips, you name it. Grandma's hair makes quite a lovely barrette. Many of these pieces are created by ladies at home, with just a few tools, some patterns from your favorite ladies' mag, and some expert braiding skills. But don't worry, you don't have to wait for someone to die to make one of these treasures. Fiancés swap hair and make trinkets for each other, as do best friends. Hair earrings, the Victorian version of the BFF necklace. First Lady of the South, Farina Davis, is gifted a wreath made out of patriotic women's hair. What a lovely conversation piece for the dinner table. They're incredibly intricate. And while this may sound gross to our modern ears, I think they're kind of beautiful. And sweet, if you think about it. Your mom kept your first lock of baby hair in an envelope, after all. At least, mine did. Why not make it into a beautiful expression of your love? I'm into it. I'll post a few on my Instagram, and you can decide for yourself. Death and mourning happen in the home, and so it makes sense that spirits and communing with them also happens there. It also makes sense that communing with them is seen as a feminine act. As spiritual writer Cora Wilburn said, The medium may be man or woman, woman or man, but in either case, the characteristics will be feminine. Spiritualism performs a very neat trick on women. It takes what in other contexts is seen as her softness, sensitivity, passivity, impressionability, and turns it into something powerful. Spirits need someone to communicate through, a vessel, and women are sensitive. They're closer to the divine than men. In other words, they're perfect for the job. Sure, in the past, women were also believed to be more susceptible to demon possession. Salem witch trials, anyone? But that means they're also more susceptible to angels. And that, it turns out, grants us its own special kind of power. Spiritualism is way ahead of its time when it comes to social reform and female power. That's because they believe firmly in individual sovereignty. A female medium needs agency, control over her body, her mind, her life, if she is to channel the divine through her. In this way, communing with spirits is almost an act of defiance. This movement puts men and women on equal footing. You need harmony between the sexes for spiritualist communion. It doesn't just give women a seat at the table. It puts them front and center, using their voices in a whole new way. Spiritualists are radical reformers, abolitionists, and suffragists. People who don't like the world as it is and aren't afraid to say so. Some of their views are radical enough that they make even the founding mothers of the suffrage movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, fan their faces. And that's saying something. But when the landmark Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 comes around, the first for women's rights in America, the spiritualists are there in force, giving speeches on a woman's right to control her body and use that body to commune with the dead. Elizabeth and Susan had to admit, in their book History of Woman Suffrage, the only religious sect in the world that has recognized the equality of the woman is the spiritualists. Communing with the dead and women's rights. What a delightful pairing. And so spiritualism and politics are often intertwined. The first woman to sort of run for president, Victoria Woodhull, had a close and personal relationship with her spirit guides. As a young girl, poor and living in chaos, she was devastated at the loss of a good female friend. She wandered through an orchard in her grief. When her lost friend showed up to show her the spirit realm, she chatted there with the likes of Napoleon, as you do, who said they'd help her bring peace down to earth. By age 10, she was falling into trances regularly and healing people with nothing more than a touch. 
Her snake oil salesman of a father was keen to use her ability for money-making, including doing things like reading up on people's family members before spiritual readings. But Victoria felt she had a real, genuine gift. And she'll go on to channel that gift into liberating women and railing against the established order. It isn't all that hard to see what we ladies find so attractive about spiritualism. First, there's how it exalts women, how it gives them a vital role, but also because anyone can participate in it. The spirits can choose to speak to you no matter where you come from. A 12-year-old girl from a farming family, or a 70-year-old socialite in Boston, or an African-American mother in Washington, D.C., all have an equal chance of finding their spirit guides. And so the movement is popular throughout all social strata. And you don't have to be an expert to perform seances. In fact, they often happen in the home. Let's set one up in our parlor, shall we? First, grab that heart-shaped piece of wood called your planchette. Picture an early version of the Ouija board, which will come out at the end of this century. The planchette is the little card we'll place our fingers on. The spirits will move it, either pointing at letters or, if we've inserted a pencil into it, we'll write down messages from the beyond. Now there's a faster way to get answers than trying to decipher a long series of raps. Okay, let's try it. Almighty spirits, will I ever have a torrid affair with Tom Hiddleston? Y. E. S. Yes! Some mediums turn their special skills into a proper profession. By far, the most famous of them all are teenage girls. Why? Well, for one, because young girls are considered innocent, a pure vessel for a spirit to pass through, and too unspoiled, as of yet, to lie and deceive. Plus, there's something kind of thrilling about seeing a young girl up on stage, by herself, commanding audiences. Especially for our male viewers, whom we normally tell to avert their gazes from women they don't know well. These displays by public mediums aren't that unlike the era's popular living statue shows. You know, that Victorian phenomena where men pay to watch a half-nude woman posing up on stage like a model in an art class. Except, you know, this is different. It's godly. And it's something most Victorians have never seen before. So let's go back to the Fox sisters in that hotel in New York. All dark eyes, dark braids, and an aesthetic that I'm pretty sure Wednesday Adams stole from them. All sorts of people come by to see them speak to spirits, out of curiosity, but also because they want to try and prove that they're frauds. As lady mediums, we're met with equal parts expectation and scrutiny. After one of the Fox's first demonstrations, a so-called committee of ladies takes the girls into a private room and makes them strip down to prove they aren't hiding any gimmicks under their dresses. Rude. Even if they are frauds, you can't blame them for it. The Fox gals are making some $90 a day for their seances, in a time when most girls their age make a bare fraction of that. Kate Fox becomes so popular that she's hired by the Christian spiritualist to give free seances. She makes $1,200 annually, a sum that puts her head and shoulders above most women, into the realm of what Clara Barton makes during her time at the patent office and what Sarah Emma Edmonds makes selling Bibles. And she, remember, has to pretend to be a man to make that kind of cash. The more famous spiritualists draw huge crowds, many admirers, and a kind of financial independence that most girls can't even dream of. But it comes at a price. In 1857, the Boston Courier sets up a $500 prize to any medium who can demonstrate paranormal ability to their group of experts, a challenge the Fox sisters accept. They are examined by three Harvard professors, who promptly fail them but it doesn't seem to slow down their reputation much. Many famous and influential people come to see them. Poet William Cullen Bryant, writer James Fenimore Cooper, famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, and newspaper publisher Horace Greeley. After having them in his home, he said, in quite a charming Australian accent, Whatever may be the origin or cause of the wrappings, the ladies in whose presence they occur do not make them. 
All of the Stowe's, including Harriet Beecher Stowe of Uncle Tom's Cabin fame, are big fans. Harriet is somewhat skeptical, but apparently the possibility of speaking to her deceased children is just too great to pass up. Dashing surgeon and Arctic explorer Alicia Kent Kane comes on down, hoping to prove the Fox sisters wrong, but he can't do it. After a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them, he said. Therefore, they are a great mystery. And we all know how men love a mystery. He's particularly taken with the middle sister, Maggie. She and this 30-something tomcat carry on a secret courtship for years, and then a secret marriage. He loved writing her condescending letters about how she should make sure to stay pure for him while he's away. Night has come, yet I sit down to show my dear little Maggie that she is not forgotten. Do, dear darling, be lifted up and ennobled by my love. But then, while on a boat to St. Thomas, he has a stroke and mysteriously dies. I'm pretty sure the spirits cursed him. Although Maggie is the one who really suffers, his family denies she's Alicia's legal wife, refusing to let her come to the funeral. They also deny her access to any of his fortune. That whole thing we talked about in episode 4 about the thin line in public perception between actress and prostitute? Yeah, it applies here too. The Foxes are even invited to the grandest house in the land, the White House. First Lady Jane Pierce brings the sisters to the presidential mansion to conduct a seance after she loses her 11-year-old son, Benny. Poor Jane actually saw her son die in a train accident, killed by piles of falling luggage. What a way to go. We don't know what happens, but the seance must have brought her comfort. Afterward, she writes to her sister that Benny visited her in dreams two nights in a row. The Fox sisters are very much like the child actors from our century, coddled and given all sorts of wild freedom. But like many child actors, they're also an object of constant want and fascination, a state of being that won't end well for them in later life. But for now, it gives them a unique kind of power for this century. Remember when your English teacher made you read The Crucible? Or, at least, made you watch the movie of The Crucible? How those girls hopped out of bed, rose up against their repressive culture, and started accusing people of being witches just because they could? That's what I think of when I think of these mediums. Drunk on power. The power to heal, to help, and to command attention. But also, perhaps trapped in the mold that they created for themselves. The Foxes aren't the only famous young mediums charming the pants off their customers. Beautiful, teenaged Cora Hatch does so as well, many times. Born Cora V. L. Scott, she grew up in religious communes that were popular in New England in the 19th century. Much like the Fox sisters, her talents were developed in a religious atmosphere desirous of radical change and happy to receive advice from the beyond. She was born with a call over her face, a veil-like membrane, which some believed meant she was touched by supernatural powers. So it's no real surprise that from an early age, the spirits spoke through her with frequency. Apparently, she'd write messages on her little schooling slate while asleep, or in a trance-like state, filling pages with the names and messages of deceased family members her parents had never told her about. By age 16, Cora is traveling the country as one of the best-known trance lecturers. That's when women get up on stage, go into an unconscious state, and let the spirits speak through them. This whole trance lecturer thing is worth lingering over. This is a time, remember, when women leading discussions and speaking up on public stages is hugely controversial. It's okay for women to speak in private and to all female listeners, but in public? And in front of men? Horrors! Though abolitionists and suffragists often support each other in the early days of both movements, this issue of women speaking to mixed audiences is something many of them split over. Even super-progressive institutions balk at ladies on stage. In 1847 at Oberlin College, where our future soldier friend Sarah Emma Edmonds will later attend, die-hard suffragist Lucy Stone is elected by the student body to give a commencement address. But the university won't let her. Oh, she can write one, of course, and deliver it to a small group of fellow lady students. 
Or, if she wants it read to everyone, a male professor can do it for her. She refuses on principle, but it doesn't change the implication that a lady saying smart things in public is considered racy in the extreme. But trans lecturers seem to be the exception. They say what they want in front of audiences of thousands and get away with it. Because of course it isn't really them saying the smart things. It's the voice of the spirits who have taken them over, using them like a puppeteer uses one of the Muppets. As one rapt guy said of a trance lecturer's performance, That a young lady not over 18 years of age should speak for an hour and a quarter in such an elegant manner with such logical and philosophical clearness pointed to a power not natural to the education or mentality of the speaker. Gross. So while these women might not be speaking up there under their own power, they are speaking in public with eloquence and poise, proving that a woman can, and making money while doing it. Many women out in the audience are struck by the empowerment of it, and write Lady Medium's heartfelt letters of thanks for what they're doing. These mediums use the whole spirit possession loophole to do something most women can't. They blaze a trail for the female speakers who come after them. Years later, when Clara Barton goes out on the lecture circuit with great success, it's lady mediums who helped pave the way for her. Our friend Cora gets married several times and is known by several names. Cora Hatch, Cora Tappan, Cora Richmond, always depending which man she's married to at the time. No matter the name, she enthralls her audiences. With the help of her spirit guides, she owns the stage, taking pressing questions from the audience that she's never allowed to see beforehand. She calmly and eloquently talks about science, religion, history, philosophy. She speaks with such a manly authority on these matters that the audience has to believe she's legit. But at the same time, this young knockout seems so childlike, so innocent, and so wholly convinced that what she's doing is real. Many times, almost numberless, I had experienced the wonderful consciousness of being absent from my human form. She wrote in her book, My Experiences While Out of My Body and My Return After Many Days, of mingling with arisen friends in their higher state of existence. Her sainted halo is dented somewhat when, at only age 16, she seeks a divorce from the first of her four husbands. Benjamin Hatch, her husband, fellow mesmerist and manager, is 30 years older than she is, which is unfortunate. She wants out of the marriage for financial and sexual abuse. You think it's hard for a woman to speak out against her abusers now? Imagine it in the 19th century, when divorce is hard to achieve and considered shameful in the extreme. But the progressive spiritualist community and the many suffragettes involved speak up for Cora. Where divorce might have ruined the prospects of some women in this era, Cora continues to travel and make money on her own for many years. Spirits can even cure the seriously ill. It's so powerful that it can bring long-term sufferers up out of their beds. Olivia Langdon lay in her bed for two years after falling on a patch of ice. Sick of her doctor's useless suggestions and desperate for help in any form she could find it, she turned to a spiritualist healer, and it cured her. She'll later go on to marry Mark Twain. Our male writer friends sure love a haunted lady. Spiritualist Asha W. Sprague is also miraculously healed of a debilitating illness by spirits. She spends years almost bedridden, trying every cure she can think of, with no end to her suffering in sight. Once more, I am unable to walk or do anything else, she wrote in her journal. Have not been a step without crutches since Sunday, and see no prospect of getting any better. See nothing before me but a life of miserable helplessness. So she turns to spirits. Tis a beautiful idea that our departed friends are around us and with us, she said, reflecting the feelings of many, that they can come back to guard us from temptation, to soothe us in affliction and win us from sin. Asha is so convinced that her spirit guides healed her that she feels called to bring their message to the public. And so she spends the rest of her life giving talks and writing for spiritualist publications on topics like abolition and women's rights. 
Later in the century, it's on a spirit's direction that Victoria Woodhull moves to New York City and seeks out the extremely rich Cornelius Vanderbilt. Like many in America, he'd lost a son in the Civil War and a wife to illness, and was particularly ripe for the spiritualist plucking. She and her sister Tennessee get so close to him that he starts giving them stock tips in payment. It's on those tips that she makes mad money and becomes one of the first women stockbrokers on Wall Street. As time goes on, mediums become more sophisticated. There are reeling chairs, levitating tables. There are writing mediums who take down ghostly dictation. There's spirit music, too. Mediums sit at pianos, though they say they can't play a lick, and let ghosts come and play through them. There's even something called a spirit trumpet, used to magnify the whispers of ghosts. Over in England, artistic mediums like Georgiana Houghton paint beautiful works of art while in a trance-like state, said to be inspired by the spirits around them. Of course, there are skeptics who object to all this, but it seems like most mediums believe, at least partially, in what they're doing, and they believe in their right to do it for profit. If my mediumship is the one most in requisition, one wrote, it is no less worthy of being exchanged for bread than any other. Me and my college roommate, Teresa, hey girl, once held a seance in our dorm room. Even now, years later, I can still feel that presence hanging over our little circle. I can feel the way the air in the room changed, filling with some kind of charge. Was it real? I don't know. But our believing in it made it real. So imagine the persuasive power of being a medium in a room full of flickering candles and avid believers wanting to reach out to the loved ones they've lost. You'd have every reason in the world to want to try and touch the beyond. Real or not, most of these girls feel like they're answering a calling. They are offering a kind of public service. When the Civil War comes, that service is more in need than ever. Even before the war, death in Victorian America is a fairly well-known companion. But at least most people die at home, surrounded by their families. When the war comes, it completely shakes those foundations. Young men are dying in their thousands, violently and, some think, senselessly. Worse than that, they're dying abruptly and far away from home. It's hard to underscore what a huge, horrifying shift this is for 19th century Americans. Dying at home is an important part of the good death. The way your relatives, and especially the female ones, can be there for your last confession, to wash and dress your body and help ensure that they will see you again in heaven. Many a soldier is found on the battlefield still clutching pictures of their female relatives and holding letters filled with half-finished last words. Think of it this way. What happens when a modern-day American soldier is killed overseas? The government goes to great lengths to retrieve their body and bring it back for proper burial. Otherwise, there's no closure, no chance to say goodbye. And that's in our century, when our relationship with death is far less intimate. When someone else prepares our bodies. When we don't spend years wearing black. So imagine finding out not only that your husband or son has died, but that no one knows where they're buried. The utter abruptness of a life cut short. Women spill their feelings onto the page, trying to understand loss on such an overwhelming scale. Many of them just can't understand it, refuse to accept it. South Carolinian Grace Elmore wrote in her diary, I am trying to work out the meaning of this horrible fact, to find truth at the bottom of this unpenetrable darkness. Has God forsaken us? And it's not just the ones left behind who have anxious questions about what happens in death. Soldiers are, understandably, fairly preoccupied with the afterlife. As The Banner of Light, a popular spiritualist newspaper, put it, He desires to know what will become of himself after he has lost his body. Shall he continue to exist, and if so, in what condition? Scores of books are published on the subject of heaven. There are songs and poems about it, all trying to paint it as a place that is both beautiful and not all that far from our own. Soldiers worry about their amputated limbs as well. Could they go to heaven with partial bodies? 
when hardcore Confederate hero Stonewall Jackson's arm is severed and left behind him. Some people actually give it a Christian burial all on its own over this kind of anxiety. For those who live, why does the missing arm ache so much? Spirits seem to offer answers. One such comes back to tell his brother that it aches because he only lost his physical leg, not his spiritual one. Though his physical body may be marred, the spirit reassured him that his soul remained intact. The Banner of Light starts a messages column where spiritualists commune with the departed spirits of soldiers and write down their messages for family and friends. Juan ads for the dead. Oh my. Scores of spirit circles pop up in every city, dedicated to trying to reach lost loved ones. In 1863, one such circle in New Orleans had a conversation with Andre Caillou, one of the first African-American soldiers to die for the Union. They thought they had killed me, his spirit said, but they made me live. Imagine how these words would have affected his compatriots while the war for freedom continued to rage. It will be I who receives you into our world if you die in the struggle, so fight. It's telling that the second most popular novel of the 19th century, after Uncle Tom's Cabin, is The Gates Ajar, an epistolary-style book about grief, loss, and the afterlife. It's written by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, who lost her love at the Battle of Antietam. She wrote it to ease her own grief, she said, but also for the helpless, outnumbering, unconsulted women. They whom war trampled down without a choice or protest. Like spiritualism, it paints a picture of a beautiful heaven just beyond the veil, one where loved ones remain who they were in life and where families will one day be reunited. With so much death and sorrow, mediums offer a grieving nation a huge amount of comfort. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln is one of many 19th century sufferers who turns to spiritualists to ease her pain. In 1862, her young son, Willie, contracts a fever and dies in the White House. Heartbroken and inconsolable, she invites several mediums to call to spirits in the White House Red Room. Abe Lincoln even supposedly arranged one, at which he peppered the medium and his spirit guides with several pressing political questions. Years later, medium Nettie Colburn Maynard wrote that she was asked to the White House by Mary Lincoln to try and ease some of the burdens sitting on her husband's shoulders. She said that she and her spirits talked to Abe for an hour, assuring him that if he went through with the whole Emancipation Proclamation, it would be the thing he'd be remembered for forever. It certainly sounds like something a radical spiritualist would say. My child, you possess a very singular gift. Abe supposedly said. But that it is of God, I have no doubt. I thank you for coming here tonight. It is more important than perhaps anyone present can understand. It's hard to say if this whole encounter ever happens. But who knows? Maybe ghosts help nudge Abe over the line on ending slavery. Like First Lady Jane Pierce before her, these seances seem to give Mary Lincoln solace. After one such seance, Mary wrote to her sister... He comes to me every night and stands at the foot of my bed with the same sweet, adorable smile he has always had. Years later, Mary takes her interest in talking with the dead even further. In the 1870s, she secretly seeks out the services of Maggie Fox to try and commune with her dead husband. The papers found her out, though, with the Times reporting. The spirit of her lamented husband appeared, and by unmistakable manifestations, revealed to all present the identity of Mrs. Lincoln, which she had attempted to keep secret. She's one of many people to pose for the spirit photographer William Mumler. He first discovers spirit photography by accident in the 1860s, when he develops a photo and finds a girl made of light, his deceased cousin. Suddenly, he finds himself surrounded by spiritualists, all wanting to use photography as a means of reconnecting with their lost loved ones. By the late 1860s, he's been embroiled in some quite public fraud accusations, but Mary goes to see him anyway. He uses his technological wizardry to produce a picture of Mary with Abe Lincoln's ghost. People call Mary Lincoln crazy, but she's just one of many women who turned to spiritualists after the Civil War to try and find some comfort in the face of overwhelming loss. 
She lost several of her children and watched her husband shot right in front of her. If that's not a reason to want to believe in spirits, then I don't know what is. A very slight veil separates us from the loved and lost, she said. Though unseen by us, they are very near. From the beginning, for every hand that flies up in favor of spiritualism, there is another trying to prove it's all just a bunch of hooey. In 1850, just two years after the Fox sisters' first experience with rapping, Congress calls for an investigation of spiritualism. It never passes. By that point, the horse is well and truly out of the gate. Later in the century, with the rise of magicians, guys like Houdini make it their business to debunk the spiritualists who are giving a bad name to magic. And so does a woman magician called the Queen of Magic, Adelaide Herman. Yes, that's right, a very successful lady magician. One of her most famous tricks is called the bullet catch, where people say she catches six bullets fired on her by local militiamen. She knows that most mediums are really magicians of a sort, practicing illusions just like she is. But she thinks it's unethical to pretend that they're real. Many mediums are exposed during this period. Exposures are of frequent occurrence, wrote the New York Times in 1909. Many of them highly sensational in character. Slate writing, spirit pictures, table tipping, rapping, and other features of spiritualism have been exposed time and again. The exposures mount into the hundreds. In 1888, some 40 years after she first helped found the spiritualist movement, tired, bitter, and with an alcohol problem, Maggie Fox will finally admit that their tricks were all a hoax. My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, she said in front of a crowd of New York's Academy of Music. At night, when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. When they couldn't do that, she said, they cracked their knuckles and toes for added effects. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It is a very common delusion. Her confession sends shockwaves through the still million-strong spiritualist movement. According to the Chicago Tribune, those audience members almost frothed at the mouth with rage. Later, Maggie will try and take it all back. A spirit made her say it was all a hoax. Naturally. Or maybe it was the fact that she was paid $1,500 for her confession. It turns out that a life of being a famous child actor medium doesn't leave you with a lot of other career options. Kate and Maggie both died lonely, broke, and as very heavy drinkers. But even after their deaths in the 1890s, there are those who still want to believe them. So were any of these mediums really communicating with spirits? Was any of it real? The truth is that, in the 19th century and beyond it, we want to believe. We want to believe that we can talk to those we've lost. And real or not, a lot of these mediums believed they were giving people comfort, and did so. Tell the Fox family I bless them, wrote an ailing Horace Greeley newspaper man on his deathbed. I have been made happy through them. They have prepared me for this hour. Female mediums claimed a kind of power and influence that in itself was almost like magic. They paved the way for women's rights and female speakers. They took the century's notions of womanhood and turned them into tools. Spiritualism was more than just parlor tricks and entertainment. It offered solace and gave women a new kind of voice in America. So next time you get out your Ouija board, call out to Cora or Asha or the Fox sisters. Pour them a shot and raise it high. Until next time. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Explorers. If you liked it, tell some friends, subscribe, and review it on iTunes. Podcasts get spread one recommendation at a time, and yours make a huge difference. Better yet, become a patron. You'll receive my undying love and hours of bonus episodes. Just go to my website and click Become a Patron. 
For lots of great images for this episode, including some fine examples of hair work and pictures of Abe Lincoln's ghost, check out my Instagram at The Explores Podcast or my Facebook page at the same name. Come find me on Twitter at The Explores Pod. If you'd like to find out more about some of the things I talked about, especially Victoria Woodhull's steamy love life, Adelaide Herman's badass adventures with wizardry, and the fine art of Victorian hair work, check out the show notes on my website. That's where you'll find links to three particular episodes of the Dig History podcast, What's Her Name podcast, and Dressed podcast, three of my favorites that you should definitely check out ASAP. You'll also find a full list of my resources, a transcript, lots of images, and more. You'll also find links to the music used in this episode, including Floating Through Time by Jerris and Winter Movement One Allegro by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my theme music and logo, and the following gents for their vocal stylings. Avery Downing, Phil Chevalier, John Armstrong, Andrew Goldman, and my main squeeze, Paul Gablonski. Thanks also to Chiquito Casto, whose audiobook recording of Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Premature Burial, and others can be found for free at LibriVox.com.